Good morning, listeners. John here, and welcome to Spark Your Fire. Uh, with me, as always, is uh, my good friend, co-host, podcaster, David. Too many hats to good wear morning. now, John. I don't, I'm not sure where I like that title. Title's getting longer and longer, and uh, how am I going to be able to reciprocate that? that that's going to take 20 minutes just to reciprocate your title now. <laughs> I was going to add all-round good guy, but, uh, but I held back. There's so much more. <laughs> thank you john thank you no, thank you it's good it's good to have you and look as always it's good to be back on on friday as we uh, as we chat through property everything and anything about property yeah i do I always like the property chats because i think i think that a lot of people tune in to, to hear about property and i think that i think there's a lot going on at the moment in the in the real estate market so what we're going to do today we're going to do something a little bit different rather than sort of just bombard you with da- uh, with data about the property market i think we all know uh, the property market's in a correction phase i think we all know the property uh, the property market boomed uh, this time last year so what we're going to talk about is an article from Michael Yardney, uh, Michael Yardney from the propertyupdate.com.au website. Um, and he wrote an article called 10 Reasons Why Our Property Markets Won't Crash. So I think that's probably a controversial position at the moment. And we're going to go through these top 10 reasons and give our perspective if we agree or disagree and why. How does it sound, uh, David? Ah, that sounds awesome. Uh, I mean, Michael Yarny, for the context, is a bit of a perma bull, I gotta say. But uh, <laughs> there's obviously there's obviously rationale behind uh, his uh, you know his 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 views, I guess. So, yeah, that's that's jump in. Yeah, and look, at, for full disclosure, like I, I um, Michael Yardy's books kind of got me into real estate. So my favorite book on real estate is called The Rules of Property, which he wrote. Uh, I think it's about five or six years old. Really good book if you haven't read it. Uh, and the other one that sort of really got me started was the, the his famous one, which is How to Grow a Million Dollar Property Portfolio in Your Spare Time, which is a little bit older. Um, so, so guys, check out propertyupdate.com.au. Uh, this is not a paid ad. This is just um, something that we think is really good. That's good quality stuff. Um, and shout out to Michael if you're listening. All right. <laughs> So the first, so so what what so he starts by saying, look, everyone knows that the property market surged uh, last year. It, it added about two trillion dollars worth of uh, uh, value in in the year of 2021. Uh, but he also says, look, for there to be a crash, what uh, two things need to happen? There need to be forced sales and no buyers on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, and he, and he sort of quotes some articles talking about a 30 percent crash. So I guess. To start off, we need we need to define what crash means, and I think crash in this context means a thirty percent reduction in property values, as quoted by some in the media. He said thirty percent's never happened. Let's go down the top ten reasons why. Um, That that's just uh, context. So the first one is that Australian, the average Australian, is wealthier than ever. The average Australian is wealthier than ever is reason number one. So he says that there's. uh, partly because of stimulus, but he said there's $230 billion in excess, excess savings mm-hmm. plus 30% more equity in our homes than two years ago. So that net increase in wealth is a shock absorber for when, if and when things go bad. What, what's, what's your take on that, David? Oh, look, I, I think in general, we do agree, right? Like uh, with the uh, with the cash rate down to like 0.1% and uh, plus the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, everyone's got nowhere to spend their money for the last couple of years. So they've been saving up really, really hard. Um, and plus the uh, because of the low interest rate, the property prices got pushed up to the next level. So I think that 
And that's what the, uh, I think that's what the RBA wanted us to feel during the pandemic is they want people to feel wealthy. So that way they were willing to be able to spend after we got out of lockdown to be able to push the economy back, right? But I think it's probably mm-hmm. taken a bit too far. And that's why, you know, now the inflation is kind of red hot and they need to somehow try to get it back under control again. So look, on that concept, on that idea, yes, the average Australian wealth is, is, feeling, uh, is feeling wealthier than ever. That's, that's definitely true. I'm not too sure what's going to happen, say, six months from today's talk, uh, you know, when there's a few more inches of interest rate goes up again, uh, people may not feel as wealthy as they wanted to uh, at that point in time. So that may change. Okay, so that may change. But at this point in time, uh, I do agree that, uh, yes, that is that is correct. Mm. What about you? What I, do you I think? I actually disagree with this one. So okay. I, I hear that I think that this is a, a little bit too rear vision mirror for me. And I think you kind of touched on this. Um, so two things is I think that it's paper wealth. Yes, like paper until wealth. you sell or crystallize, I think that this is, you know, the valuations are just sort of paper wealth. Now banks will bank that paper wealth, but it's still paper wealth. And I also think that there's a question who's getting wealthier. So I don't think that a real estate boom, which is essentially what we're talking about in 2021, spreads that wealth evenly. And this is sort of mm. central bank hyperinflation type, well, inflationary increases in perceived wealth. Um, so I, I kind of have a bit of a problem with this. It also reminds me of something that Michael Burry said that we discussed on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, which is that that, that pool of savings is depleting in America, at least very, very quickly. Mm. So when you've got inflation and the cost of living goes up, that $230 billion of excess savings will get eaten up either by interest repayments or by, you know, milk and bread down at the, the grocery store. So I kind of, it's like a question mark for me. I think it's probably a no uh, just on that basis, but he's right in uh, like a recent historical sense, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of like from the com- from the current snapshot context, right? Like, and if we talk about maybe six months later, then yeah, things may not be as rosy as what people may think. And you're absolutely right. That savings, uh, I think people have been spending hard uh, ever since the lockdown has been, uh, has mm-hmm. been lifted, right? So um, yeah. So the savings position might change very, very quickly uh, in addition to the inflation that we're currently seeing plus all the increased mortgage cost that's about to come as well. So, yeah. Yep. All right. So it's kind of a, 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 a an amber light on that one, I think. I think that's sort of we're halfway, no, not green or red, but I think we're amber on that. Number two is that there's no sign of mortgage stress for the majority of borrowers. No sign of mortgage stress for the majority of borrowers. Um, he's saying... Uh, there are very, f- very few loan defaults um, and that non-performing loans are under 1%. And most people are well ahead of their mortgage repayments. Um, David, you, this, you do this for a living. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, so I think a lot of it from the financial perspective, yeah, like uh, we touched on this before, whenever banks assess uh, loans, they do like they put like a 2.5 to 3% buffer on top of the current interest rate they're being assessed at, right? So there is that financial buffer uh, in, in, in place when you're taking out a loan. However, that doesn't mean the borrower is prepared um, mentally, at least mentally and psychologically to be paying that kind of prices, especially when we just came out from a record low interest rate. And God knows how many people jumped in last year, right? At the peak of the market when they took out a huge mortgage and uh, everyone believed Philip Lowe to say, yeah, we're going to keep the low interest rate until 2024. And then the narrative until the narrative changed again. So I think that combination of a few factors with the current oil prices getting high with, again, with the inflation costs, with everything going up, 
um, you know, there's, there's more psychological stress, which is different to actual financial stress there, right? So people kind of like, okay, well, what am I going to do when interest rate actually goes up to 4%? You know, can I actually afford it? That this kind of questions actually start tinkering in people's mind, okay? Um, and, and, and it's an interesting conversation, I have to say. It's very, very different uh, to last year's narrative. Um, so again, I think it's a ember, personally, for me. Whilst there is, we've only just gone up 0.75%, right? Um, whilst there is no actual financial stress or very, very little defaults in financial stress, but it's already causing a psychological stress to a lot of the borrowers who may have overleveraged themselves. So that's why I say it's an ember. It's kind of like, yes, on a financial sense, but no, on a psychological sense. What do you yeah, reckon? I think I think it's really well put. I I broadly agree with this. I agree with you. I think you put it brilliantly that the the, the stress isn't actually realised yet. It's it's all this sort of expectation mm. of future distress. So I, I don't. I think that I think that partly because of buffers that we'll we'll come to a bit later. I, I agree that there really aren't. There isn't that much in the way of mortgage stress. The absence of buyers and increasingly the absence of sellers is really just that they expect prices to be lower in the future, but it's not because they, they find it prices unaffordable or they they're in any particular distress. There's a it's actually a bit of a holding pattern. It's wait and see when are we going to get some guidance from the central bank that rates aren't going up anymore. So I can't see mortgage stress uh, being a big factor. So I agree with this. I think it's like an amber tinged with green uh, on this one. You got different um, variations now. Ember plus a tinge I know. of green. <laughs> Pick a lane, John. Yeah, <laughs> but I broadly agree with that, and I think you're kind of the amber on that one, which is which is good. Yeah. Uh, number three, interest rates are still low. Uh, so he says, look, even if um, even if we get back to what we call quote a neutral setting, that's still where the rates were three years ago. Mm. Um, again, David, this is your wheelhouse, mate. What uh, what are your thoughts on that? Interest rates are still low. Looking, yeah, again, I think uh, at the moment, yes, uh, that is that is the case. I mean, it's it's more like a statement than anything, to be honest. We just got out from a emergency rate of a 0.1% cash rate, which was never seen in any kind of humankind that I'm aware of anyway. Um, so, you know, the, we all know that the interest rate is going to go back up and um, it's gone back up 0.75%. Um, so now sitting at 0.85% on the cash rate. In comparison to what was previously to pandemic, I think it was 1.75 around that um, before COVID hits, and then and then and then they and then they drop it down to 0.1, right, all the way. So yeah, if you look at if you compare where we are now, 0.85% cash rate versus a pre-pandemic 1.75, we're still about another 1% difference uh, in that sense. So you know the the interest rate at the moment are still low. Uh, yes, that that is correct, but don't forget. People have leveraged a lot more in the last mm. 12 months as well. Okay, so the neutral, what you call the neutral cash rate or the neutral rate may change this time. Let's say in the past, it might be 2.5% as being the neutral cash rate. But now, every time when they tinker and put it up a bit more, there's going to be consequences. So they may not go all the way back up to 2.5 or they may go up to 2.5, but they may have to scale back afterwards to mm. resuscitate the economy um, and to get it back in shape. Okay, so... Yeah, so I, I broadly agree with that. I think at the moment, it's like I said, interest rate are still low. Yes, it's a statement. It may not necessarily be this way again in six to 12 months time, depending on how inflation beast goes. Um, yeah. Um, what do you think, John? 
I actually disagree with this. This is a red for me. And the reason is, is because I don't think what matters is what the interest rate is. I think what matters is um, the the direction that interest rates are going. So it's the change in interest rates rather than the Mm. interest rate. In this instance, interest rates are rising. Um, So that's what I think matters. It's the direction of interest rates, not the interest rate. So um, you you mentioned something a few moments ago, which is that when you lower interest rates, you kind of entice people into debt and then you increase the interest rate. Then the neutral rate is a bit of an ambiguous concept. Like Mm. neutral is now different to what it was a couple of years ago. And there is really no such thing as a neutral rate. Um, There's only a rate, you know, repayments that you can make and repayments that you can't make. So I don't think that interest rates being low is necessarily instructive. I think it's the direction of interest rates that matters. And at the moment, interest rates are going up. So I'd say this is a a part of the puzzle that means that property markets will crash, according to this definition. (laughs) All right. So we disagree on that. I like that. I I I like we don't kind of see eye to eye. That was number three. Number four, banks are conservative with stress testing loans. And this is where I think, again, uh, David, I'll throw it over to you. But I think when you guys, when brokers were assessing uh, applicants, it was the, the banks were assessing them at plus three, 3% 3% over the prevailing rate. Yeah. Correct. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so yeah, so 3% on top of your, on top of the actual rate that you're getting, or uh, they say the minimum, let's say the minimum floor rate. In other words, you can't go lower than that when you're being assessed was around the 5.25%. So in other words, if you get a 2% mortgage, you're not being assessed at 2% plus 3%. Okay, mm-hmm. you're getting assessed at 5.25%, for example. Okay, so you can't go below that. In other words, minimum repayment is at 5.25% or more, okay, or higher. Whichever is higher, you get assessed on that. Um, so, yeah, they are conservative with stress testing loans, which is why it circles back to what I was talking about previously. From a financial perspective, no, people are actually not struggling today. However, it's more of a psychological, like, like what you said, what's coming. It's that what's going to come uh, is currently the, the the crux of the issue at the moment. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with Michael. I think that this is actually a really big piece of the puzzle why I don't think that property markets will crash. Mm. Um, a 3% buffer is great. You know, it ta- it's going to take a lot of rate rises to, to gobble up that 3% buffer. So people are going to be comfortable. People aren't going to like it, but uh, people are going to be comfortable for the duration of probably of the rate rise cycle. Yes. I'd, I'd say one yes. other thing, historically uh, a rate rise cycle, um, and this is going back like 50 years, but the rate rise cycle, except for I think the early 80s, was only one and a half percent. So when rate rises go up, basically the central bank taps out at about one and a half percent. And so we're already at about 75 basis points. So we're probably halfway through the rate rise cycle. Now, everyone's signaling that it'll rates will rise more than that. But historically, they only go up about a one and a half percent. So we'll see how we go there. But I, I agree. That I think, yeah, yeah. Well, there's enough conservatism in the system to to protect. Uh, don't forget, system. we also we we've also printed so much money in last mm. twenty four months as well. So I reckon that might have you know a bit like a bit like what you're saying in stocks is that the volatility of and 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 the actual magnitude of these changes are going to be much bigger than before. So we'll see. All we can say is you know. Be conservative, plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
That's right. But we we didn't have the lie loans and the ninja loans and all that sort of. Stuff. I mean, our, 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 we we have a lot of oversight, which I don't always think is a great thing. But yeah, uh, I think yeah, defaults will be will be low. All right. Mm-hmm. This next one's interesting, and it's a little bit of a, a, a historical perspective. Um, so so let's let's have a chat about this. Number five: rising rates didn't make the markets fall in the past. So rising rates didn't make the, the markets fall in the past. Uh, so he cites two th- the, the, the period from 2004 to 2008 and then from 2010 to 2011 where rates were rising, but prices were rising as well. Um, so, and he also quotes Stephen Kukoulos, who's an economist who wrote an article in, in, in Yahoo, which talks about um, that there's not necessarily a correlation between higher rates and lower prices that rates can rise and prices can rise at the same time. David. I think this one is probably up your alley, to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> more, more, more up your alley, but uh, I'll give my brief, I guess, uh, a view on this. Um, yes, I think if you look at the historically, the rising interest rate doesn't necessarily... Uh, I mean, it does have certain correlation, but it's not the only. It's not the only reason why would it make the market fall or, or go up, right? So there's there's a lot more element to how the property prices. But fundamentally, I think it just comes down to demand and and uh, supply um, ultimately. And 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 most important equation is whether you can still get the funding or the finance, which is not what's being touched on here. Um, you know, because I think based on these example that's given a rising interest rate, um, and you know whether whether the rising interest rate actually has a direct correlation is more to do with whether whether people can get finance or not in the back end. Mm. That's my personal view. Okay, if because if you think back around the what the 2018, 2019, when the when when it's literally impossible to get any loans, when we assess as such like seven or eight percent type of assessment rate. Nobody can get finances, and that's what's really what's causing the market to crash, even though there was literally no change in interest rate at all, right, across that period. So um, so I think, broadly speaking, yes, I, I, I say rising interest rate didn't make the market fall in the past because, yes, there's an element of, uh, of psychological to say, okay, well, it's, it's, it's more costly for me to hold a property. In other words, mortgage costs has gone up. So that dampens the demand to a certain degree. But when you talk about own occupiers and when you talk about certain investors, there's still other markets that can invest. So you can only have a certain level of impact, but not a full impact. I think the full impact will still lies within how easy people can get a mortgage in order to buy and mm-hmm. finance. That's my view. What about you, John? Back over to you. So I agree with the, I agree with the point, um, but I don't necessarily agree with the data. So what, what I mean by that is, Yes, property prices can rise while interest rates are rising, and, I, and I'll give reasons for that in a second. But I also, I mean, my read of the data, and I don't have it in front of me, but I thought that property prices did decline gently between 2004 and 2008. So I, I and if rates were rising at that time, I, th- I think property prices did come off a little bit at that time. So here's why I agree, though. I think, firstly, um, pro- real estate isn't a univariable asset, yeah. as in it's not decided only by this one thing called interest rates there's there's a couple of things there's supply demand of properties there's interest rates and then there's demographics so interest rates is one of a couple of factors that determine interest rates that's the first thing second thing i'd say is that rates are rising by itself is not enough um, because of these other factors i think what matters more 
is how fast they're rising. So rates are rising very quickly at the moment. So there's more likely to be some sharper pain because of the magnitude and the, and the, the speed of the increases, which is why I think that eventually they'll reverse course. Mm. But rising rates by themselves don't necessarily mean that, that um, prices will go down. So look, I, I agree with Michael Yardney on this. I agree with, with you. And I think the history is probably a little bit more vague, but um, <laughs> real estate has a lot of different drivers. Real Interest rates are but one of them. And I think that when people say rising rates, equals lower prices. I think it's too simplistic. And I think that, again, yeah. th- th- this is a, a, a little, real estate's a different asset class to Bitcoin, to stocks, where those kind of relationships probably correlate better. So yeah, I agree. Good points. Uh, number six. So uh, he's saying that there's a dire supply shortage ahead. So talk about supply and demand, saying that we're running into a supply shortage. And he talks about immigration, which is sort of the the seventh point as well, Mm. that there's a big influx of immigration uh, coming or that's just started. This is going to go straight into housing and we're, we're sleepwalking into a property shortage. What do you think? I haven't got the data uh, with me and I think you're probably the data geek out of, two of us yeah <laughs> so you can comment more on that but um i mean there's there's a lot of from what i'm from what i'm hearing there is a lot of builders that's gone bust uh, at the moment and people mm-hmm. are getting funding issues in terms of projects they're doing right so um i can only comment broadly that based on what i'm he- hearing you know like uh, small developers are struggling and i mean even the bigger ones right we've, we've heard some of the big names that's actually gone under uh, recently so um, there's, that means there's going to be a, um, a big supply shortage in terms of the construction dwelling in the next few years, potentially. And if we do couple uh, with overseas migration because they want to, they want to continue to get uh, skilled immigrants in uh, for the next few years, then yes, I would broadly say it's in line. Um, you know, I would tend to agree with these two points uh, that yes, we are going to see a supply shortage. And at the same time, based on the overseas migration picking up and depends on how quickly they pick up, uh, it will then potentially, potentially fuel the next boom. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with Michael Yardney on this. And and I think that we need to think of real estate as a little, again, it's a little bit different. So if there's a big increase in migration and Mm. supply shortage, I think that we need to think of real estate as, um, whether you're renting or buying, you're still a consumer of real estate. And we are all consumers of real estate. We're not all consumers of Bitcoin. We're not all consumers of BHP shares, but we're all consumers of real estate directly or indirectly. So um, if people, if a big influx of migrants come in and they start as renters, they are future buyers. And I think that I think that this is a, a big plus that yes, there's there's going to be a, a housing shortage. The only caveat is what type of property becomes scarce. Where does the where does the demand go? I think it's not entirely clear to me because the um, in the sort of lead, lead lead up to COVID, units were doing quite well. Units have really underperformed the last say three years now. Yes, correct. Um, and houses have outperformed. So where the demand exactly goes and where exactly the shortages turn up, I think is open to speculation, but generally speaking, I think it's right. Mm. And then then it comes down to an affordability and demographics equation, right? Mm. Basically. So. Ah, And the next, the next point, number eight, uh, sorry, number seven is basically the same point. It says overseas migration is going to pick up and saying that 
arrivals have risen sharply since I think February 2022. Do we, I think that's the same. Yeah, we covered that. So we'll just move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number eight. This is interesting. Experts routinely get it wrong. Now we are all old enough to remember 2020. (laughs) We're all old enough to remember 2020. And in 2020, you remember everyone predicted, everyone except for Spark Your Fire, I should say, actually. (laughs) You said it out loud. We all predicted. Yeah, we all predicted 30% um, declines, except for this podcast, we said there'd be a boom. Yeah. Now, but that but that was, that was a minority view. The experts uh, said 30% de- declines back in 2020. Uh, David, thoughts? Um, so, yeah, so so I guess what they're saying is the, the, the so-called experts routinely or often gets it wrong, right? Um, and... Again, this is like the, the models they keep, even the bank's economists, right? The models they use keep mm. on getting updated and changed and depending on what parameters. So there's just way too many parameters for us to be able to forecast what's really going to, going to happen to a degree that I stop guesstimating or speculating for a long <laughs> time, um, right? Yeah. Because there's not much point um, to that degree. But um, how should I say it? Look, uh, the way I should probably position it is if the government did not intervene to a degree, like for example, if back in 2020, if we did not have JobKeeper, if we did not have mortgage repayment pauses, yes, then maybe, maybe a 20 or 30% could happen, right? Um, but government stepped in and government intervened and government till this day still has a very strong, uh, I guess, motivation to, to make sure that the property market does not crash. Um, and I think you know, there's a new scheme that t- talks about a- an equity share, right? So the government may actually own up to potentially 40% of a property, co-own 40% of a property with a potential borrower or buyer moving forward. So, you know, that gets them even more, um, more into the property and have more skins in the mm-hmm. game. So, you know, my, my, my take off this point is the so-called experts could uh you know they, they obviously do their predictions based on the forecast based on the data whatever they can get but they can't predict what the government will do and what government stimulus and how that's going to really impact the market so that's why you know don't get don't get too sucked in by those so-called experts 30 percent, whatever no the government will likely to be stepping in again you know if it's required to uh to get the property market stabilized yeah i agree think? i agree i think we we sometimes confuse experts with people who just happen to be holding a megaphone by, by that i mean journalists are the people with the megaphone but they don't have any particular insight in fact they're probably contrary indicators for, for what's going on like if a if a journalist <laughs> says that oh. such and such and such is going to happen the opposite is probably true and i that's a hopefully there are no journalists listening um anyway um I, <laughs> Their main, the main thing, their main thing is to get clicks, right? That's ultimately the, yeah, what, what, what a journal, what a media, is. yeah, is about. Partially. yeah, yeah. And I think what you said is, is right. Like, if it, it, a lot of the experts, when they make predictions, they never assume that there will be a reaction to mm. what's happening. Correct. Um, a policy change was the reaction, and and that's what we kind of did predict. We said that the property market would would crash or there'd be a, a, or an evaporation of supply and then the central bank will do x y and z and then so you have to you have to be able to predict what the and then they will do this that said it's it's totally a waste of time making predictions um i, I think because you're going to be wrong at least half half the time and i know that i i got the 2020 prediction right but i i i'll get many more predictions wrong and i i got i got lucky i suppose so experts get it wrong yes 
this comes back to something we said when the when the microphones were off as well. Um, I think we focus too much on the price we pay rather than the asset that we own. Mm. Focus on owning good things, owning things of value, yep. uh, and don't fetishize what price you got in or the timing. So I think that's important because predictions are, are a waste of time. Yeah, no, I totally agree, mate. I think, like I say, you know, I don't think you and I basically don't check our property prices. I don't really care, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people gets really fixated and say, okay, well, have my property gone up, you know, 20% over the last six months? That kind of mentality is very, very short term, you know, and property investing is a long game, like we have done hundreds and hundreds of time on this podcast, basically. Um, you got to keep a long-term view. So, you know, you and I probably just focus on how can we ensure that we, can hold our property portfolio across the long term and weather the storm, including the next six to 12 months without having to sell anything. How can we ensure that we hold onto these portfolio long term? Um, because we know from, you know, that's that's the boring stuff, but that's what's really going to get you wealthy. Mm. Yeah. Once you buy the property, the, your focus should switch to, Correct. not to what it's worth, but it should switch to whether the, the oven works and whether the rents are going up and, and so on. So yeah, good point. All right. Number second last one, number number nine, Australia's economy is strong and he points mainly to unemployment, but a couple of other things. Hmm. Thoughts on that? This one is probably up, up your alley. How about I throw it back to you first? <laughs> Look, I, I disagree with this one. I think that I think that things can change. You know, we are a wealthy people here in Australia, but that hmm. doesn't mean that again it comes back to the direction and saying that we are wealthy is too static a, a way to look at uh, at wealth. Uh, and again, a lot of our wealth is on paper. So um I, I don't I don't I think that I think that lockdowns did damage that will last at least a decade. So uh, when we say that unemployment is low, yeah, sort of, but um, there are shortages everywhere in the in the economy. We've screwed up our su- supply chains. We can't get goods and services, and um, and we've got we've got inflation. So I don't particularly think our our economy is strong. I think we do some things really well in this country, and I think that, that resources will probably help us. There might be a resources boom, but we don't manufacture and there's a couple of other things. So I think Australia has too much wealth in its real estate industry. And that's one of the reasons why governments tend to step in to buffer uh, buffer the, the industry yeah. and to yeah. prevent property prices from going down. But look, for me, that's a big question mark. Australia's economy is strong. Look, uh, you know, Argentina's economy used to be in the 70s, was they were the same uh, wealth per capita as, as the US and and now they're not a wealthy country. So things can change. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that is a, a buffer. Uh, for, what a, for, I thought for, of one word uh, in terms of our current economy, fragile. Basically. Yeah, I like think it is. It fragile. could change. It could change very, very quickly, right? Whilst the whilst the data on the on on, on what RBA has shown us might show a, a, a sense of positivity and making sure that it's very strong. But hey, again, it comes down to the psychological impact when people look forward to say six months, twelve months from now, how is that going to impact me and what things will be? Yeah, so things can change pretty quickly. Uh, essentially, I think that's mm. yeah, that's that's uh, that's the current narrative. I would say. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I don't really think that our economy is as strong and as robust as what yeah. our, uh, our central bank may think it is. So, mm. yeah. And I think, I think there's a difference between uh, thinking that you've got full employment at half a percent interest rates and, mm. have, uh, you know, and what the employment rate will be at 4%. So, uh, you know, we, we, we paper over things by, by QE and, and uh, central bank kind of 
printing of the currency. So we, we constantly feel feel wealthy when we're not really as wealthy as we think. So I think that there will be a day of reckoning, but I just don't think it's now. So yeah, um, I, I disagree. Yeah. Okay. The next one's really interesting, um, but it's got my least favorite word, the C word, which is crisis. Um, number 10, <laughs> Australia is on the verge of a rental crisis. And without going through the data, we all know that uh, rents are going up very, very quickly in Sydney um, units uh, and, and houses are going up at about 10% per annum. Mm. Um, I think annually, I think across the country, it's actually a little bit more because of places like Brisbane and Adelaide and Canberra. Yep. But let's say let's say lots of lots of uh, rental increases, and this will prevent a property market crash, according to the list of ten. David. Yeah. Look, I think rental. I'm, I'm trying. I'm struggling to try to find a correlation between the two, to be honest, <laughs> because yes, you know the the rental market itself is 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 not really correlated to the to the value of the property market if i if i may i mean yes okay so if people can't rent does that mean they're actually going to buy to a degree um and, and and yes you know like that so that's why i'm trying to actually draw i'm actually trying to draw the dots and try to link the dots at the moment and say how is that going to uh, really going to impact the the property prices to a degree the rents itself is a rent right um and the property prices doesn't have a i mean i fail to see the correlation between the two so i don't quite I, I, okay, so I agree. Yes, we are on a bit of a rental shortage at the moment, but I failed to see how this point would be able to justify all forms as one of the points that the property prices will not will not mm. crash, will crash. I think there are two reasons why it will put a buffer under the under prices. The first one is that it uh, it's like a company putting its dividend up, so mm. it will attract investors into the market, mm-hmm. and we can see that actually. Investors who have been largely absent until this year, uh, investors are flooding into the market and actually dominating the market. Oh, yeah. The okay. So, so investors, it becomes attractive to investors. It'll bring investors in. Two, for existing owners of real estate, the, the investors, um, it removes the pain of higher interest rates. So if you can offset the cost of paying higher interest rates yep. with receiving rents, <laughs> means you can hang on. And in wherever there's an absence of panic selling, you're not going to get a, a property market crash. So that I think they're the, the two reasons. And I, I generally agree with this point. I think that, uh, and also renters become buyers, you know, in the next couple of years, mm. um, but it's just overall demand for, for real estate. So I, I kind of, if rent has high yields, that's generally a good way to attract buyers. So basically getting the investors back into the market to hold, to hold yeah. the forward essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. I understand. And that's, that's the top 10. I'm going to read them out really quickly. Um, so the, here are the 10 reasons why the property market won't crash. And we we agreed with some and disagreed with others and we're on the fence for some. But number one, the average Australian is wealthier. Number two, there's no signs of mortgage stress for the majority of borrowers. Number three, interest rates are, are still low. Number four, banks are conservative with stress testing loans. Number five, rising interest rates didn't make the markets fall in the past. Number six, Dire supply shortage ahead. Number seven, overseas migration is going to pick up. Number eight, experts routinely get it wrong. Number nine, Australia's economy is strong. And number 10, I feel like David Letterman. Number 10, Australia on the verge of a rental crisis. So I think, look, I think that, what, what, what's your overall take uh, just to wrap up, David? I mean, do we, do we 
Where, where do you line up in the overall thesis that this is why there will not be a crash of, let's say, 30% or uh, look, more? Yeah, I, I, think, I think broadly speaking, yes, I, I, I can see some valid points. And like you and me kind of says, you know, there's some points that we agree, some points that we don't not necessarily agree on, right? Um, but in general, this is part of the normal correction cycle that we're seeing. I don't think it's really going to crash. I think it's going to be a more of a correction. And um, and and how much of a correction will depend on how much how much how much uh, it will take to get the inflation piece under control. Um, right. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't get too fixated in terms of when to enter the market, when to exit the market, um, and yeah, a bit like a lot of people are like saying and shouting that the sky is falling down, the sky is falling down. Well, don't forget property are very, very are not liquid, not like stocks. You know, we're already seeing mm-hmm. the stocks going through a bloodbath right now, but that's because they're so liquid. Properties, not so much. You know, there's still a bit of a slow reaction to it as well. So um, hold your long-term view uh, in that sense. And like I said uh, before, focus on how you can improve things, how from the operations perspective is your, do your rent reviews, make sure, you know, you're, you're optimizing, you're looking after the tenants to a degree as well. Um, and then pay your mortgage. And um, yeah, that's the, the the boring part is the best part I like about property, in honesty. Mm. And, you know, yeah. I shut off I shut off media now, mostly nowadays, basically, because it's all just negativity news. So I've got a lot more things to get on in my life than that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. I think that's a good way to wrap up. Look, I agree. I don't, I don't think there's going to be a crash. I think that there'll be some pain and I think things will go yeah. down. But I think when you go into a tr- a, an acquisition as big as, real estate, which is, you know, for most people, the most important thing that they buy, never expect anything to, to happen in a predictable, smooth way. You're not going to, even though historically you, you're going to get six or 7% per year, that's not going to happen every year. Correct. So you will get six or 7% per year, but that doesn't mean you'll get it every year. So don't expect, uh, don't expect there not to be challenges. It's going to go up and down. And what will actually happen rather than 6% per year is it will zigzag its way out. And you'll get all of your returns in a cluster of just a couple of years, every mm. 10 years. Mm. That's what yeah. actually happened, even though it doesn't look like that uh, from afar. That's such a great point, John. And I think, you know, looking back in the trend, you know, you'll have, you might have seen the market basically do nothing for five years. And then all of a sudden yeah. they jump 60 or 70% in a year, right? So a bit like what we've seen yeah. last year. So <laughs> that is exactly right. That is exactly right. That's yeah. what that's what actually happens. And and we average it out so everyone thinks you're going to get six percent per year, but but that's not how it works. Correct. Wonderful. Oh, look, David, wonderful um uh chat. And uh, I listeners, I hope you got s- some really interesting things out of it. Uh by all means, check out uh, Michael Yardney's uh website, which is propertyupdate.com.au, one of the best uh, real estate websites in the world and one of the biggest too. Check out this article called 10 Reasons Why the Property Market Won't Crash and, and tell us what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, and uh, and we'd love to hear your feedback in the email uh, below. Uh, as always, this is not, uh, not, not financial advice, of course. Uh, this is just a couple of schmoes uh, giving our opinion, uh, a little bit of experience between us, but, uh, but certainly just opinions. Uh, stay safe. Don't over leverage. Uh, and we will see you next week on the podcast. Bye from David and John. See ya.